Welcome to the Dellingpod with me, James Dellingpod. And this this week is an example of why I think, no, actually I don't even think I know why my podcast is the best podcast in the world. It's because I've noticed recently that other people have been doing podcasts, sort of pale imitations of mine. And they've been using loads of the same guests. So you see the same people cropping up uh, up again and again. And I'm not, I'm not dissing the usual suspects because the, the reason they're usual suspects is they've got loads of interesting stuff to say. But I'm so excited about this week's guest. And I know I always say this, but he's a mate of mine, an old mate of mine from Oxford. And I haven't pretty much seen him since Oxford. And he wrote this amazing book, which I want to draw to your attention. I also want to talk to him about other stuff as well but uh his book is called god's wolf welcome to the podcast jeff lee thanks james and uh i guess uh it'll be a sign of how well i do if i get some invitations from those other competitive yeah, podcasts yeah, after this and also happens. i have put you on the spot now i mean it is now requisite that you are one of the best podcast guests ever so <laughs> otherwise people are just gonna go yeah but the reason he's not on the podcast is because he's really boring <laughs> Believe me, I, I feel the pressure, and I, I've avoided doing this podcast up till now because of that. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. pressure. But I totally love. I I can't recommend your book highly enough, and it's about a topic which you really one can't read enough about because it's got everything, hasn't it? It's got it's got swords and heat and death and chivalry and and other stuff. Uh, the, the Crusades. Yeah, well, that's what attracts, uh, attracted me, of course, initially to that period, is the romance and the, as you say, the chivalry, the the unbridled violence of the medieval period, and particularly the, the Crusades, going to far-off places and uh, and fighting people. Outremer. I love yeah. that term. Well, Outremer was what? The, the whole of the Crusader area? Yeah, so Outremer, beyond the sea. Yes, it's romantic, more romantic when you say it in, in French, isn't it? But yeah, so these guys were picking up from their lives in uh, in Europe and going to this remote, mysterious, holy place across the sea with no idea of what they were going to find there and with uh, incredibly, incredibly brave uh, and um, pioneering uh, people. When they got there, the lifestyle was so much better, wasn't it? Than that. I mean, if they, if they played it right, they could live so much better than they would have done in, in northern Europe. Well, yeah, there was uh, the the lifestyle and the civilization in in the Middle East at that time was far ahead of of Europe, which was pretty backward and barbaric. Um, they had running water in their homes. They had baths. They had uh, they had carpets on the floors. They had sugar. They had all sorts of uh, of exotic fruits, and uh, they had much greater uh, learning at the time. The the the, the Muslim um, scholars had kept alive. Uh, a lot of the learning of uh, of the Greek philosophers and so on. So they had a lot more uh, thought, and uh, the Crusaders came upon something, a civilization and a way of life, which, yes, blew their minds. And a lot of the Crusader propaganda, actually, to try and get, uh, after the first crusade, to get more Crusaders to come to the East was based upon that. And they were saying things like... Um, if you come to Palestine, uh, if you have a house in, or if you have a, a, a cottage in France, you will have a palace here in Palestine. And for a lot of crusaders, that was true, because when they stormed cities like Jerusalem, common soldiers were seizing huge houses and all the wealth in it and suddenly transforming themselves into, into very wealthy men. But they were kind of misled, weren't they? Because the first crusade 
was a raging success. They, they, they succeeded beyond their wildest dreams. They took Jerusalem. And it was kind of all downhill from, the, from there, wasn't it, on the subsequent Crusades? I don't think that's fair. I mean, it, it's true in the sense that the First Crusade, which took Jerusalem in 1099, was a success beyond anybody's wildest dreams. And it was an impossibility that these disparate armies uh, managed to march across Europe and Turkey and down through Palestine, defeating huge armies on the way, and take Jerusalem. So that was a remarkable success, but then they had to establish themselves in Palestine. There were lots more cities to conquer, lots more ground to occupy. Um, they were still always short of manpower compared to the Muslim enemies around them, and so it was a constant warfare. But they still did manage to um, to take most of that littoral, which is now uh, Israel and Lebanon, all that area, and hold it for almost 100 years. Um, and then still hold on to some coastal cities for another hundred years after that. So the main crusader establishment, if you like, lasted for a century, essentially. Yeah. That doesn't sound very long to me, actually. Well, in the great scheme of things, it's not. But that's uh, many lifetimes of men. I mean, there were many crusader families who uh, you know, had many generations born in the Holy Land. So they were essentially Easterners. So at the end of that hundred years, was that it? Were they all driven out? After the first hundred years, so that Jerusalem fell to the Muslims again in 1187, and then um, the Crusader presence in Palestine was restricted to the coastal cities and some uh, castles, like the great castle at Crack de Chevalier, which no one could take. Um, and they lasted again till almost 1300, when, when those final coastal cities were eradicated by the Mamluks from Egypt. So uh, the main Crusader states, if you like, lasted uh, for about 100 years, but then the Crusader presence in Palestine lasted until... Uh, the end of the 13th century. And you know all that. Did you do this stuff at Oxford? I studied Arabic and Islamic history at Oxford. Is it, was, it, was, that, was that to get in? <laughs> uh, actually, no, it wasn't, but it was, it was an, an area of interest of mine. For um, uh, I've been interested in the Israeli-Palestine conflict for a long time, and uh, I studied other languages, and I thought Arabic would be interesting. But also one of the reasons I studied that uh, was because I loved history, and I was able to study with one of the greatest historians in the world, Patricia Croner, on that subject. Um, uh, but also that the course allowed me to do one period of European history, which was the medieval period, which I loved. And so I was able to do that focusing on the Crusades while I was at, at Oxford, yes. I, I, I think, I don't think I, I know of anyone else who's reading that. that I mean, how many were there on the course? That specific course, I think I was the only one who was doing those Brilliant. two uh, things. But there, of course, there were lots of people doing Arabic and lots of people doing Arabic with other subjects. A lot of people did Arabic and Persian, for instance. And so you can speak Arabic? Yeah. And... What, any other um, Middle Eastern languages? Uh, I have poor uh, Farsi. I'm married to a Persian, so I uh, have learned a lot of Farsi by osmosis. Right. But I've never studied it. Actually, Farsi is much easier to learn than Arabic. It's an Indo-European language, so many words are very similar to the words you and I use. So mother is mother, brother is brother, door is dar. So, so basically what you're saying is I can speak Persian, I just don't know it. Exactly. That's yeah. great. Precisely. Uh, Although Farsi, it makes it easier for me because um, there are a lot of Arabic loan words now in Persian since the Arabic conquest in the 7th century. They don't get on, do they, the Arabs and the Persians? They, they, they do not. One of the first things I learned about Persians when I first met my, my best friend is a Persian since I was 12 years old. And I remember calling him an Arab. And I got pretty short shrift yeah. when I was uh, 12 years old from the Persians I knew who taught me very quickly that Persians and Arabs are very different. Is it like the rivalry between... I, I, I discovered when I was living in South London 
that there is no love loss between Caribbean black people and African blacks because the uh, the African the black Africans looked down on the Caribbean blacks because basically they got enslaved they're a bunch of slaves and the the Caribbean blacks think that, that, that basically anyone who's still in Africa is, is a, a jungle bunny. I mean, the racism among non-white people is far, far greater than... Yes, I, I think you, you, I've, I've, I've had that from Nigerian friends of mine as well who, who make those, those references. And when it comes to Arabs and Persians, yes, the Persians, particularly I think from the Persian side, yeah. really look down upon the Arabs. They call them locust eaters. Right. And, uh, of course, the, the Persians have this great thousands of years of history and uh, empire and civilization you know cyrus the great they say did the first uh, human rights and so they look back on this this imperial civilized past mm. and they compared with the arabs who they who conquered them who were essentially bedouin from the desert and the persians really have never really got over that and do the Pers- do the arabs have similar kind of contempt for the persians they were they sort of effete and N- not that i've come across right. no so I don't think it's it goes the other way, and, and uh, I guess if you are the conquerors, I guess it's easier to be blasé about those you've conquered and uh, from whom you've taken a lot of good things of their culture, like architecture and poetry and things like that, which the Arabs quite simply just absorbed into their civilization. Now, earlier on, I I heard you using the kind of uh, the the modern politically correct pronunciation of of Muslim, which is Muslim. Now I can I can forgive that because after all you've been immersed in this culture since since university. But it is it is usually a tell for somebody who's about to give a really completely correct reading of the Middle East. And I want to reassure my listeners <laughs> that in your case this this ain't so because God's Wolf is um, it's. It's not the conventional history of the Crusades, is it? You, you've you've um, you've challenged some of the the conventional views about the Crusades. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I I say Muslim because that is how the S is pronounced in Arabic, obviously. But uh, uh, yeah, I, I hope the book is historically correct, not politically correct. Yeah. Um, and I I didn't approach the subject from that point of view necessarily. I, I approached it because I felt that. The, the protagonist, Reynald de Chatillon, this, this, this great crusader character, had, uh, had had a bad press or that he wasn't properly dealt with in the sources. But when you actually come to examine it in, in detail, you realize that the reason Reynald has not had his rightful place in history is because he does not fit with the, uh, the current uh, the paradigm, the zeitgeist, the received narrative about what a crus- the crusades were. Mm. Exactly. Well, um, I, d- I mean, Stephen Runciman, for example, is he is he very PC on the Crusades? Runciman is, uh, he wrote a marvellous three-part history of the Crusades, which everyone should read, and it's still the staple uh, book on the subject, and I reread it all the time. Um, but yes, he, and certain things, he does toe a similar line. Um, and he has his own prejudices. For instance, Runciman loved the Byzantine Empire. Right. Um, so everything, uh, all his crusader writing was seen through the prism of how it affected uh, the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantines. And he regards the sack of Byzantium um, by the crusaders in 1204 as one of the greatest crimes ever committed by humanity. Right. Um, but uh, yes, when it comes to Reynald, 
uh, he is very much uh, in the co- in the camp of this man was a rampant, bloodthirsty aggressor, and to a certain extent that the Crusaders as a whole were these barbaric thugs uh, who came to mess up this lovely um, Middle Eastern civilization. And if you asked most people in the street now, um, those that were even aware of the Crusades, they would say, they would come up with the line that yeah we were these brutal thugs who went and invaded Muslim territory and we did all these terrible things and we should feel guilty about it. Isn't that more or less the, the line? I think that's true and I think that people do hold that view as a whole. In fact, the, the, the Pope, I think it was around the year 2000, issued a kind of almost an apology for the Crusades and there are there is still this kind of residual guilt that we somehow went and invaded and were, uh, w- were running a sort of colonial experiment and that the, the local Muslims were these unsuspecting peaceful victims of Western aggression, which of course is just complete anachronistic nonsense because they were fighting amongst themselves quite happily all the time and just the another another belligerent force was introduced into that area um and that i think this is topical because that view is held by as you say people who have any awareness of the period and when it comes to reynold i remember talking to boris johnson uh, last time i saw him a couple of years ago and uh boris said jeff he said what are you doing now i said i'm writing a biography of Reynald de Chatillon. And Boris, of course, knew who Reynald was. He said, why are you doing that, Jeff? The man was a complete bum. So this uh, this idea that Crusaders were, were wicked uh, has permeated even unto Downing Street. Right. Yes, well, you, you, you introduced him at the beginning by pointing out that a letter from Al-Qaeda, uh, sorry, a letter bomb from Al-Qaeda was, uh, was, was addressed to Reynald de Chatillon? Yes, the Crusades are alive. So, um, in 2010, I think it was, um, uh, yes, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula sent a couple of bombs by FedEx uh, and one of them uh, to explode over Chicago and one of them was addressed to Reynald de Chatillon, a man who died 900 years ago. Yeah, because I think apart from Boris, who's hyper, hyper-educated, I don't think many people would have heard of him now and yet you say his name lives among... Yes, he's, a, he's still a hate figure uh, amongst Muslims, certainly Muslims who are engaged and or Islamists, because he was a, a, a violent enemy of the Muslims at that time, an extremely effective warrior, which has uh, led to his name going down uh, in infamy with, uh, with the Muslims, understandably. Um, less so that it's understandably got, that it's gone down in infamy with, uh, with the West as well. Yeah, so I, I think we must stop this teasing and actually cut to the chase. Who, tell us a bit about, about this guy's extraordinary story. So Reynald uh, comes from what is now, came from what is now Burgundy, um, a, a younger son, so probably didn't have much inheritance there. So he, like many younger sons, upped sticks and went with the Second Crusade, in this case, to Palestine to fight the Muslims, to fight for Jerusalem and the Holy Land, which was a fundamental inspiration for many young men at the time. Um, the Second Crusade was a disaster, but Reynald did extremely well. He managed to marry the Princess of Antioch, the greatest city of the Crusader states and one of the great cities of, of the ancient medieval world. Um, so he became Prince of Antioch. Um, he was uh, handsome, uh, ruthless, ambitious, a very effective warrior. Um, as soon as he became Prince of Antioch, he started to give uh, some other aspects to his reputation, though, as well. So, for instance, uh, the, the head churchman of Antioch was very annoyed that this man had come in and taken control of the city. Um, so Reynolds, to teach him a lesson, uh, had him stripped naked, 
and uh, tied in the sun on the top of the castle tower and, uh, where, and smeared with honey so that uh, bees and other insects tormented this aged prelate throughout the day. Um, uh, and uh, that was the kind of guy he was. If someone gave him uh, any shtick, he uh, took no prisoners. Yeah. And so, okay, so he's Prince of Antioch. And then how does he establish his reputation? Well, he uh, fought the Muslims very effectively while he was Prince of Antioch, kept them away and uh, kept away some very powerful Muslim princes from, for, from taking control there. He also added to his, um, his, his negative reputation by attacking uh, the Byzantine island of Cyprus, which he sacked with great violence. Uh, it must be said, though, um, in retribution for being cheated uh, by the Byzantine emperor, uh, of some money which was owed him. Nevertheless, uh, what he did, what his troops did in Cyprus was something really quite extraordinarily shocking. Um, he then uh, was captured by the Muslims and spent 15 years in prison in Aleppo uh, until he was ransomed by what was then the highest ever ransom paid for a crusader leader, 200,000. Um, who, who paid that? Uh, it's not exactly clear who paid that, um, but it was, uh, the, the, the sources say it was raised by his friends, but it's not clear who those friends, those friends were. Now that scene, that scene in Aleppo, I find extraordinary that anyone could survive a year in the Aleppo dungeons, let alone 15 years. So d just describe what it was like in that, that mound. Yes, Aleppo is built upon this mound which has been there for centuries. In fact, they say Abraham grazed his sheep on the, on the hill of Aleppo, which is Halib, which is milk in, uh, in Arabic, which is where the, the, the stories come from, that, that, that Abraham lived there. And it's built on this mound which is like a warren of tunnels and dungeons. And many crusader leaders were imprisoned there and some died there in, uh, in agony. One, um, Jocelyn of Edessa, the, prince of the, 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 the Count of Edessa, died blinded. Um, in a jail, and then his uh, one of his sons was then thrown into the same jail by uh, the Muslim leader there to kind of increase his agony. Um, the the leader of the Templars as well, one of the leaders of the Templars, uh, a Knights Templar, died there in, in in the dungeons of Aleppo as well. So it was a really harsh imprisonment. You didn't want to get captured, did you? By Nur al Din was the was the kind of the the, the bad boy. Yeah, Nur al Din was the Muslim leader then. He was a powerful uh, warrior, and when he captured these guys, he didn't ransom them. A lot of a lot of uh, leaders in the Middle East would be ransomed because they could be very valuable, and so it was quite worth ransom, you know, keeping uh, uh, opposition leaders alive so you could then ransom them back and make a lot of money. Nuruddin didn't do that. When he captured you, if you were a leader, he stuck you in jail. He, he preferred um, the kudos of having um, crusader leaders in prison to the cash which they could raise. It was only after he died uh, that the, the weaker leaders who followed him decided to, uh, uh, to ransom Reynald. Um, uh, and uh, and let him back into the Crusader fold. But if you weren't a a, a bigwig, if you weren't a, a prince or whatever, you were likely going to be offed, weren't you? And probably hideously killed by by the the Saracens or, or yeah. Whatever. If if you were um, a local Christian, yeah. Uh, uh, fighting with the Crusaders, that's it. If you were what they called a Turkopol, fighting on their side, yeah. that was automatic uh, execution off if you were Beheaded captured. or...? Uh, usually beheaded, yeah. Yeah. So and then they stuck the heads on the... They'd stick their heads on spears or, you know, after some battles there were so many heads arriving you know, back in Damascus and things, they said they were coming in like watermelons. Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was one of the things the Muslims uh, liked to do after battles was um, behead the dead and also, uh, unfortunately, in some cases... Uh, behead uh, prisoners uh, as well, yeah. 
But didn't Richard the the First also attach the heads of captured Saracens to his? Richard the Lionheart was yeah he was uh, a fantastic warrior. I mean he could his presence al- alone could terrify entire armies, and he was known for taking the heads of the Saracens who he had killed and attaching them to his bridle. So he would ride back after a battle with these these heads slung around his horse, yeah. Was that was that considered um, OTT or was it fairly routine for the, the period? Uh, pretty routine. I don't think any of the... I mean, the, 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 those descriptions are simply uh, when of the, of those of that those scenes are just mentioned. They're not mentioned with any particular commentary. They seem to be just accepted. But, so, when we watch films like... Days of oh, sorry, Kingdom of Heaven. Is that is that the Ridley Scott one? Yeah. When we watch films like that, which I haven't seen yet, but I, but you've described it in the book. But but the general take now, Western take on the Crusades is slightly guilt-ridden, isn't it? And it's slightly like we are not worthy. The 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 Saracens and particularly Saladin, this this marvelous prince. He he was so much more civilized than we were. We were barbaric, and and. This lot were were sophisticated and 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 they they discovered all the I don't know um, uh, science and technologies that were unknown in the West and and they they kept the learning of the ancients going etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, how accurate is that version of events? Inaccurate because the Muslims were just as violent and bloodthirsty as the Christians. Um, that that whole that whole view, which is largely the the view uh, at the moment from the West, is. Is skewed. It's not accurate. Um, there were many different Muslim factions. Uh, there were uh, Orthodox uh, Sunni Muslims fighting uh, un- you know, heterodox Shia Muslims. There were Turks fighting Arabs. There were Kurds. Uh, there were many different. There were lots of different local princelings were fighting each other. So the idea that the, the violence came from a Christian side is just not true. And the Christians themselves, um, you know, were. Uh, were just as intelligent and just as capable of adapting and uh, being civilized as the Muslims, and certainly Saladin, who, if you like, is the kind of poster boy for this idea that um, the the Islamic civilization was uh, inclusive and diverse and uh, somehow more tolerant than the Crusaders, yeah. is is a good example because he wasn't. He actually had a habit of of executing, of murdering prisoners after they had been taken. Um, uh, and uh, and he was, uh, in my view, um, uh, someone who specialised in assassination, in uh, espionage, in a lot of the dark arts, um, and was certainly not someone who intended to live in any kind of uh, tolerant, diverse compact with the Crusaders. He wanted to eradicate them. Right, right. Um, and who was the better, better warrior? Well, I mean, Reynolds' life is seen partly in, in, in this, this negative light because he's compared to Saladin, because he was a direct adversary of Saladin. Yeah. In fact, he was Saladin's most effective rival. Um, and when it comes to war- being a warrior, then Reynolds wins hands down. I mean, Reynolds actually went in the front line and fought um, with great effectiveness and bravery. Saladin never actually in, got him, you know, his sword his sword bloody in combat. He was oh, really? sitting behind the lines, yeah. In fact, the only times I've seen, I've been able to find that Saladin actually used his weapon um, to kill another human being, both of those occasions were uh, defenseless prisoners. One of them was, a uh, spoiler alert, <laughs> one of them was Reynold de Chatillon. Yeah, he was, uh, Saladin uh, was, uh, was a vengeful uh, human being. In fact, my next book's going to be about Saladin, and I think that uh, it'll be a slightly different take on, uh, on, on that, uh, on, on that, on him. 
I must say, I did get the impression that it was pretty... The odds were pretty stacked against you as a crusader in those times. I mean, I, I, I don't know how, it, how they didn't get defeated every time, because they were so outnumbered, weren't they? They were outnumbered constantly, but they were very effective warriors. And they were well-armed, they were well-disciplined, they were well-trained. Um, and interestingly, again, we have this image of them being reckless, charging knights who you know, threw caution to the wind. And again, yep. that's inaccurate. And if you look at the, the Muslim fighters who fought against them, they would say that the Franks were the most cautious in warfare. So they didn't commit themselves unless they felt they had a chance of winning because they knew the danger of being of overcommitting because they would be if they if they were wiped out then you know if they lost a large number of men that was the end I them. see that yeah but what was their what was their tactic they would um, their most powerful weapon was the mounted knight so a heavily armored charge by uh, mounted knights was their their shock tactic and they would uh, march along with the knights behind a screen of infantry uh, uh, letting the Muslims, uh, who were mostly fighting on horseback, uh, to come in and attack them and get closer and closer. And then when they felt they had the opportunity, the infantry would open and the mailed, the heavily armoured knights would charge in, a, in an unstoppable uh, charge at the, at the enemy. They said that um, watching, a, watching a crusader knight, you could imagine that he could drive his lance through the walls of Babylon. Right, okay. That must have been awfully hot in their armour. Yes, you'd think so. And... And there are occasions when you read that um, of people expiring through heat stroke and things. It's not necessarily knights. I mean, just anybody on the battlefield and on, and on both sides. But somehow they seemed to manage it, and they would march for sometimes day after day uh, on fighting marches and and manage to to be effective. So uh, somehow they managed. But yeah, it must have been baking. But did they perhaps have a kind of a fighting season, a bit like the the Afghans do, because the Afghans don't fight in the in the heat, do they? They they fight in the wind in the. No, they were fighting in the in the height of summer. The, the, the campaigning season in Palestine was, you know, spring to autumn. So right. In the heat of the, the the summer. And they had the most amazing castles, didn't they? I haven't. I I want to go to Crac de Chevalier, uh, but you can't now, can you? You can go it's now. It's in the middle of a civil war there. In, Where is in it? Syria. Is it it's in Syria? It's, yeah. So I, I'm lucky. I have been there. I went before the the wars. So, um, um, and I think it's, I think it was occupied by different forces over time the last few years, but yeah, it's the most spectacular castle. My favourite Crusader castle, though, is actually Reynolds Castle, um, which he took over after he came out of jail and he re-established himself as a leader in in the Kingdom of Jerusalem, which is now in Jordan in a place called Kerak, and I think it's the most underrated Crusader castle, and also one of the most mysterious. It's vast. But it has all these underground warrens and storerooms and dungeons, and it's never been properly excavated. Brilliant. But uh, it's just uh, it's sitting there and um, and waiting for someone to to restore it a bit and uh, and uh, and tell us all the stories, the hidden stories that are there. And Jordan is Jordan is very doable. I mean, I've I've, I've been to Jordan. I didn't feel threatened. Jordan is very doable. And uh, although there was a terrorist attack at Kerak at the castle on tourists uh, a year or two ago. Oh, great. So uh, Al-Qaeda in Jordan or whatever, ISIS in Jordan or whatever, someone decided to go and target some tourists there. And what happened? Uh, well, they killed some tourists and then they were, oh, right. the Jordan uh, Jordanian police got them. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, that <laughs> that's put off about 95% of my American listeners, I, uh, yeah. I, I think. But yeah, no, I, 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 well, I haven't I like taken my castle. kids there. I'll put it that way. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 But we love we love a good castle. And um, what else haven't I asked you about 
about um, that I want to know. So, okay, yes, the amazing battle that he fought in. The, uh, what was it called? The one where he won big time. Oh, Montgisard. Mon- yes, yes Montgisard. I mean, should should that be going go down in history as one of the battles we should we should memorialise? Well, this is this is one of the things that drew me to Reynold's story because this battle was a phenomenal victory for the Crusaders. One of the greatest victories they had in the entire period of the Crusades. Yeah. And yet, historians just skate over it as though it's a footnote and as though it's... they're embarrassed because the wrong side won. The wrong side won. Saladin was comprehensively defeated, and it took him ten years before he could win another vic- win a victory against the Crusaders. After that battle, it said that after that he rushed home and and uh, and hid himself in a in a in a dark room for a week in mourning that, after that battle. But yes, but Reynald was the the general of the Crusaders at that battle, and it doesn't fit with the received narrative that this barbaric thuggish oaf could. Um, defeat the great hero who was Saladin. And I think that's one of the reasons why the achievement of the Crusaders at Montgisard, where a small Crusader army defeated a much larger Saracen army, that's one of the reasons why that achievement has been relegated to a footnote. One of the things that really struck me reading your book was just how few hardcore... Um, I mean, it was a bit like the Battle of Hastings, where you've got the house carls who are a tiny body of, of, of royal kind of guards. And then you've got the third, who are the, who are the basic army. And in the same way, it seems that you had a tiny body of, of armoured Franks doing most of the, the heavy fighting. We're, sort of, we're talking hundreds, aren't we, rather than thousands? Yes, so uh, of an army, the army which, uh, which fought the Battle of Hattin on the 4th of July, 1187, the Crusader army may have, is estimated to have been about 18,000 or something like that, of which... Only 10%, so maybe 1,500, were yes. these mounted knights, which were really the key to turning the battle of the Crusaders. So favor. you really couldn't afford to lose many knights, could you? Because no, they were absolutely, they were worth their weight in gold, yeah. And was it just because their armour was really good, or was it just because they'd been or because they'd been trained since childhood in this stuff? And what made them so almost invincible? Well, it's hard to say, because nobody's ever seen a Crusader charge and knows what it was like, or really given it accurate description but I think it was a mixture of those things they had fantastic armor so for instance if you were a Muslim uh, and you know you you wanted to be wearing captured Frankish mail I mean that was the best mail so um, and you know the the, the Crusader armor did stand up to Saracen arrows and so the descriptions of the Crusaders marching along doggedly while the Muslims are going in and shooting arrows at them until they started they looked like hedgehogs at the end of the day so the the armor was good they had the good mail they had good helmets they had powerful war horses, war horses who were trained for this purpose. And yeah. yes, I think something which is underestimated uh, is the amount of training which they must have done to be able to function in this incredibly effective way as a united charge. Yeah. So I think they were very, they were, as you say, they were trained, knights were trained since childhood for this purpose, for killing. And so yeah. they were extraordinarily effective. Yeah. I'd like to, I'd like to see some, some reenactors doing... Um, Doing Crusader, but you, I, I bet I bet you don't get much reenact. You, there is a lot of there is reenactment, but and they they reenact the Battle of Hattin now and again. But to get reacted to reenact a charge is just simply too dangerous. Yeah, I mean they, they can't even reenact, uh, you know, nineteenth century cavalry charges very effectively. And if you read, there's much more for there's much more uh, writing uh, evidence of those. And for instance, one of the things I read about it, one of the the, the, the Napoleonic War cavalry charges, is that the cavalry are charging so close together that some of these horses are actually lifted 
off the ground because they're, oh, they're right. actually caught between the horses on either side. And you can imagine a huge warhorse with a, a cavalryman on top is actually off the ground. And I imagine the Crusader, the Frankish charge of the Middle Ages being something like that, with these knights getting into an incredibly compact, sort of wedge. dense wedge, unstoppable yeah. formation, and then just powering at the enemy. And if you saw that coming, you know you had to. There's nothing you can do to stop it because they can't stop themselves. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Um, I will never see it's like again. We could. Do, you, you say that Kingdom Heaven is is a is a fairly accurate, apart from the the PC stuff, is a fairly accurate. Yeah, I'd, I'd recommend watching it. It's fun. It captures the uh, I think the, the civilization of the time and the feel of the of the period very well. The idea it captures how the, a lot of these crusaders were very integrated into into Eastern life, speaking Arabic, wearing Arabic clothes, and so on. Um, what it what it where it really falls down is this idea that. Um, that there was uh, a faction, the Crusaders, who somehow wanted to live in peace with the Muslims and were quite happy, uh, you know, giving up the kingdom, uh, giving up a Christian kingdom to the Muslims if it was going to lead to some peace, which is just not the case. Before we get, go on to other stuff, I, I feel that we haven't stuck it enough to the the kind of Edward Side school of of Western guilt studies. That that I mean, that book Orientalism. Was it, it poisoned the wells, didn't it? For yeah, and yeah, yeah, yes. Edward Said has a lot to answer for there, and and um, it was a book which certainly has dated very badly. I think. Um, I haven't read it, by the way. What does it say? <laughs> just, just no, well, it it, it's, it it says what you say, what, what you're getting at. It was this, this idea that the West looked down upon the East and that the East has been caricatured as, you know, as, as effete and uh, debauched and, uh, and, and stunted. But that's and not true, is it? I mean, you, you look at, you look at um, Richard Burton and people like that. These people adored the... The Middle East. They thought it was a fantastically exotic and wonderful and exciting. Yes, place. well, he would say that's part of the caricature that is somehow seen as this romantic other, and you know, rather than you know, real people, and that allows you to you know approach it or sort of treat them in lots of different, in lots of uh, negative ways. Um, and Said, of course, was a Palestinian, so at the bottom, at the root of his grievance was the um, the loss of uh, of Palestine to. Uh, Israel in the 1940s, yeah, um, and that has coloured much of uh, coloured much of his thinking, and of course has coloured much of Muslim thinking about uh, about the West. And of course, the Crusades is retrofitted yes. into that grievance about the current grievance about Palestine, Israel, because the Crusaders were in, captured the very similar. Uh, part of land where Israel is now, and, they, and somehow they're seen in the prism of this Israeli-Palestinian conflict. They're seen as pro, uh, as forerunners of the, this violent, nasty, horrible inroad state of Israel, which has taken over part of Dar al Islam. Yes, well, exactly. Well, if you were doing your course now, do you? Re I mean, I can't imagine that that your your thinking on on this subject would be welcome. Um. I honestly don't know, but I, sus I suspect not. It's certainly, you know, it, it, it is it is radical. It's not it's not the way that the uh, that the the period is overwhelmingly perceived. Yeah. So I'd certainly have to have a lot of arguments. I, I think, although I, 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 to be honest, I haven't really looked into talked to to academics since I published the book. Um, a couple of things have come out which were. They still seem to be towing the same line, but I have a feeling that things are moving a little bit, and that people are starting to have some doubts about the received narrative. Well, before we started, before we press the button, 
um, on my on my recorder, I said to you, and I do believe this actually, that the the children of the likes of us are no longer welcome in Oxford and Cambridge. That 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 okay, one or two might slip through the net, but basically, I know I know for example that um, one head of admissions at one Oxford college was overheard boasting about the fact that they'd rejected all the Etonians who'd applied that year as though this was a kind of badge of badge of honour. And I think it's rather sad because, do you know, when we were at Oxford, it was kind of, it was, I hate to use the word diverse, but there was a, there was a mix, wasn't there? I mean, there were, there were the sort of public schoolies doing their, their Bullington Club thing, but then there were the lots of northern chemists and and things like there was there was a variety and now i think it's a politically correct monoculture well i i hope not and i certainly know my alma mater balliol um is now run by uh the lady who previously was head of uh, the national trust and turned oh God, that which, one, which one i forget her name not helen goshed yeah yeah helen she's Gosht. terrible i mean a completely low grade no talent well she transformed the National Trust into a kind of, you know, as far as I could see, kind of some kind of leftist campaigning organisation. Yeah. And I hope she doesn't do the same to Balliol, where you always, at Oxford, you always hope that um, free speech and, uh, you know, questioning attitude no, to life prevails. But I fear that that's not I no went, the case. I walked a couple of years ago, I think, when I was thinking about, about it for my daughter. I... We, we went to the open day. I remember walking past Balliol and it was so work. It was all about persuading people from, from you know, comprehensive schools and stuff yeah. and, and ethnic backgrounds and minorities and, and, and so forth that actually Oxford wasn't that, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't posh and it wasn't this and it wasn't that. Whereas Balliol, in our day, I mean, your, your, your year group in Balliol was amazing. So many... You were a golden year. I, I mean, I was in Christchurch, so I was a, I was in the what the grandest, grandest college. But, but I remember gravitating towards Balliol because you had such interesting people there. You had you, Boris, Aidan Hartley, Robert Twigger, um, Justin Rushbrook. Really interesting people, who were not, well, they weren't standard Bullington Club people apart from Boris, who, who was who was in the Buller. But you were an interesting. Quirky yeah, names to conjure with. Yeah, that, that's true. Um, although the, the the college was run by a leftist cabal, which actually was part of the reason that uh, you know my political formation came from seeing leftists at work in that JCR. And you know, for instance, it gives me insights into Jeremy Corbyn because I've I've seen precisely his politics at work in the JCR. So I know that he's simply a student politician who hasn't grown up because I. I've seen it before when I was a student. Um, just on that subject about Balliol. They ran a, a, um, a re- bit of research with uh, the alumni, Balliol did, and they asked what were the things which were important to the alumni. And, of course, one of the things they suggested that we could vote on was outreach to, uh, you know, to um, working-class communities and things. Interestingly, that was far down the list when you looked at the results. The one thing that the vast majority of alumni cared about was excellence. Yes. They wanted Balliol to be a seat of excellence. And, of course, that meritocracy... <laughs> Is not, shouldn't uh, mean excluding people from Eton or excluding people from anywhere. It should be 
utterly diverse. But, but their choice of, of, of master, or is she called a master or mistress, do you think? Hel- Helen Gosch is an absolute no-talent. She's, she's a kind of low-grade civil servant who I think failed in a number of departments before being booted sideways to the National Trust screwing up the National Trust. And and her appointment is analogous to uh, the woman who got the job of Master of Trinity, Cambridge. Another talentless woman, Sally Davis. Right. Yeah. And, you know, where would she, where, where did she come from? She was some, had some role, I think, some function ruining the NHS or making it even, making it even worse. Absolutely. Oh, that's right. She was Chief Medical Officer. Chief Medical Officer, absolute rubbish. You know why these people got their appointments, and, and it wasn't because they were ta- they were the, the brightest and best available. It's because they needed women to. Yes, perhaps. But colleges, uh, Oxford and Cambridge colleges, seem to specialise in this kind of appointment, like Alan Rusbridger. Yes, what, uh, you know, I'm a Tim Garden from the BBC. Although Tim is a very highly intelligent human being. Um, but a lot of these uh, bureaucrats uh, seem to get appointments at Oxford Colleges, Oxford Cambridge Colleges. It's a shame. Um, Bailey, of course, I have a particular uh, feeling for, but um, they have a problem. So they're so left-wing now, for instance, that when Bailey uh, won University Challenge yes. last year, the team afterwards refused to do an interview with the Daily Mail because they regarded it as a fascist they rag. Were, they were they were really uh, they came. I, I, they I could detect that unpleasantness coming coming through. I just thought, okay, you're bright, but you're you're so woke that really, you're not nice people. You're just full of unpleasant judgments on you know you're not you're not fair and you're not. That that's what worries me. I, that Balliol used to have every Oxford College and Cambridge College, I'm sure, had their their defining characteristics, isn't it? So so Christchurch was was quite grand and public schooly and bride's heady and we had good oarsmen and so on. Balliol was famous for its intellectual independence. It wasn't it wasn't as doctrinaire left wing as say Wadham, which was always yeah. a kind of lefty hellhole. You, if you got into Balliol, you were you were an original thinker, and it didn't matter whether you're on the left or the right. You were you were there because you were sharp. I'm not sure whether these distinctions still exist in Oxford colleges. I think they've just become this. Well, as I said, a monoculture of, of, of wokeness. Well, that would be a great shame. I mean, um, although at Balliol, when I was there, there was quite a lot of stamping out of, uh, of, of right-wing dissidents, if you like, certainly in, uh, in student politics, um, which turned me against politics for many, many years, actually, until I finally realised that one had to start getting involved at one level or another. Yeah. Um, but yes, it does seem that... For me, the intellectual curiosity is the problem because uh, a lot of what I see in certainly leftism and, in, for instance, in history is the avoidance of fact and the preference of some sort of emotion or doctrine over what's really happening or what really did happen. Is, is it not the case that the further back in history you go, the more politically correct the field becomes? Because, because in the absence of, of a, a wealth of documentation... People are free to put their interpretations on. This is particularly a problem I gather in sort of early British history, where everyone's determined to prove that ancient Britain was a land of immigrants. Well, I, th- I think that's probably true. But that's one of the, the things that attracts me, for instance, to medieval history. Yeah. You can, um, you know, tr- if you weren't writing something about Hitler, there is no way that you will be able to read everything, all the documents, and get all the evidence together. No yeah. human being could ever master all that. But 
when it comes, for instance, to Reynold de Chatillon, I know as much as anybody, any human being possibly could. And so then, on top of that, that, that meager amount of uh, original source, you are free to put your own interpretation on it. So, yes, theoretically, is the further you go back in, in history, the more um, ideological uh, it, 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 it could become. Um, but still, you have to try and be as you have to try and be as contextual as possible. You'd have to try and you know, if you put your interpretation on the past, try and make sure that it fits with as much as possible with how people would have thought at the time. This is why I love that book I recommended to you, um, "The World Is Not Enough," by uh, I've forgotten, uh, Zoe Zoe Oldenburg, who was a white Russian emigre lived in in Paris. I think it's the second best historical novel I've read after after War and Peace, and it really captures that. It doesn't it it, it doesn't view these people through the filter of of kind of uh, you know post enlightenment Western civilization. It it gets into the mindset of what it would have been like to live in those in those times. Yeah, I think that's that that's critical, and and of course there's the other aspect of history, which is it does give you insights into the present if you look at the facts. And uh, in an area close to your heart, uh, climate, for instance, I, it always baffles me why any historian could ever believe in this theory of catastrophic anthrop- anthropogenic global warming, because anybody who's studied history knows that the climate changes over time, knows that extreme his- uh, climate events have occurred, which have flooded and killed and starved and destroyed civilizations and homes and so on and um, it's but you have to look at that with real perspective and it's always remarkable to me that taking a doctrinaire view of the past you seem to be able to to wipe out all the anything which is inconvenient to your current truth well that is look what what did you learn going back to your uh, your bailiard days about the the radical left how do they roll i learned a lot about that from bailiard because a lot of these guys who were with me at Balliol actually became very successful politicians under Tony Blair, particularly. I remember Stephen Twigg, who was a leftist in Balliol at the time, standing in 1997, standing next to Michael Portillo, rather shamefacedly, uh, as he was uh, announced the winner in the 1997 election. And many of those who I was at Balliol with went on to become have very successful uh, careers as leftist politicians, MPs, and so on. But what I learned about them was they were nothing to do even though they talked about uh, social justice uh, and welfare for all and so on, all they cared about was power. Even in this tiny little pond, all they cared about was ruling the college with an iron fist. So if you were one of the few people who might stand up in a JCR meeting and give any kind of dissident view, particularly if you were a, uh, a right-winger, you would literally be shouted down. Mm. All they want, Balliol, Balliol at the time was famous for having an unlocked door. The Balliol door was never closed, 24 hours a day. It was the only college that's door was never closed and I thought this was a great symbol of openness and so what did they do they campaigned to have it closed the students who benefited most from having this door open all the time from this 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 open ethic of Balliol uh, the 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 leftist clique which ran the junior common room campaigned to have it closed um, they campaigned for everyone all the women to have rape alarms because apparently they were all in danger of being raped in the college we said great, and we campaigned for all the men to get rape alarms as well, which they had to do then. <laughs> Gave all the men rape <laughs> alarms too. Um, uh, unfortunately, the only assaults I recall from that period was this was during the period of the miners' strike, and they were con- they asked miners to come and talk on uh, in, in on, on in college. And two of the miners, who they in two different occasions actually eventually ended up assaulting girls on the, on in the college because they they came along, they got them 
probably got them a bit drunk and things. So it was very embarrassing for them. And then straight after uni uh, the university, I mean, one of the main leaders of this this cabal went and joined the coal board, um, which I thought was quite interesting too. Very so funny. Yeah. I learned a lot about uh, the hypocrisy of the left, and I learned about a lot about how they only cared about power. And certainly, by the time of Tony Blair, a lot of these guys who were essentially Stalinists at university had managed to modify their rhetoric so they fitted in with New Labour, but they didn't really care one way or the other. They just wanted to get into power. This is this is the Peter Hitchens line on Tony Blair that that actually he's much more a Trotskyite than than has ever been. You know, he's he's viewed as a centrist, but actually he's much much more left than than people generally realise. Quite possibly. I mean, my my education in this area, as I say, this turned me off politics, and I certainly didn't become a right winger. The the the, the conservatives threw much better parties at university, which should have given me a clue, yeah. and I think had a much better sense of humour. The leftists are all very po-faced and serious about things, um, artificially so, obviously. But then I, I I suppose my my education in this area was continued at the BBC, where I was part of a left liberal establishment, and then at Channel Four News, where I was really in the belly of the beast. Um, at a time when uh, you know uh, the New Labour were coming in and John Snow was, uh, you know, would talk to Alistair Campbell before the night meeting every morning. Was there a shift? I mean, I, I, Channel Four News now, like the BBC, is so far left that I've just given up on it. But was there, when you were there, was it? Could you see this 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 transformation from a kind of OK news site into something else? I, I can't say what it was like before, but certainly when I was there, it was extremely left-wing. Ah. And so I became known as the voice of reason in, in the newsroom after the Woodrow Wyatt column, because uh, his column, uh, his, his right-wing column, because I, I would be the sole voice raising any kind of doubt or any alternative view without really being at all ideological about it. I'd sometimes say, well, have we thought about X, Y, Z? And, you know, there would be silence around, around the table and we just kind of move on. Um, and so, uh, you know, raising any any questioning voice was regarded simply as just being you know, off uh, off message. So you had to get out of it, get out of dodge in the well, end. Well, here's an example of how right uh, left wing this was. So there was a girl we hired on the foreign desk, and we subsequently she turned out to be a friend of my wife's. We met a few years ago later when she was a literary agent, and uh, I, I I said to her, "Well, how did you like Channel Four News?" And she said, "I hated it. I used to have to read the Daily Mail hidden inside a copy of the Guardian." Yeah, because reading a Daily Mail in the newsroom was just unacceptable. Yeah, yeah, I can't let you go without picking your brain for memories of of Boris. Because I mean, it's weird, isn't it, that 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 we we happen to have known this guy who became prime minister. What are the what are the chances? But do well, you say that it's interesting because my key memory of Boris when you were at university is that everyone knew that Boris one day was going to be prime minister. Yeah. For me, it was just simply one of those things that one knew Boris was going to be PM. Yeah. And so that would be my main uh, memory. Whether that's good or bad, I don't know. It suggests a really incredibly driving ambition, which I think he had, but he could take his knocks. I remember when he, was, he stood for president of the Union of Oxford and he lost. Yeah. And a lot of people, after they lost, just wouldn't try again. Boris tried again and won. So uh, he's got a lot of great... I'm a big fan. He got me involved in politics when he started standing for mayor of London. Was the first time I started getting involved uh, in politics. What did you work with him on? His no, I just campaigned in my local area. I thought right. this guy can do the job, and guess what? He did. He. My impression of, of Boris was that he was much more fully formed than the rest of us. I mean, maybe you. Where, where were you at school? Uh, I was at school at Sherburn. 
Okay, I will say you were a hick from the sticks like me. So you, <laughs> yes. d- 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 there were there were certain types, weren't there, who were much more sophisticated, like the ones who'd been to Westminster, who were just like trendy Londoners. They were so they were too school for, too cool for school already. Yeah. The Etonians who knew absolutely everybody, um, but most of us were just these unformed creatures trying to experiment with our identity and discover who we were and and, and so on. Whereas Boris had sprung to earth fully formed, or so it seemed. Yeah, I think that, I mean, I, I knew his sister Rachel as well very well. And yeah. um, I think as a family, they were you know much more grown up and uh, mature than the rest of us and always had their eyes focused on things beyond university in a kind of long-term plan or long-term yeah. ambitions, which most of us just getting on with our, you know, daily lives and, you know, going punting and chasing girls. Exactly. Going, going punting, trying to get laid, um, smoking dope in my I don't know about you and yeah, yeah. You know, get, getting getting drunk cheese appreciation society and, and so on that yes was I ran that for a while actually did you yeah Chapsock uh, I yeah. was secretary of Chapsock chap yeah, yeah, yeah. so well there, there you are you see that, that there's a mark of <laughs> damn it <laughs> there's a mark of tremendous tremendous soundness yeah exactly I just spent my three years there just sort of pissing about and doing a bit of acad- I mean one yeah. did work hard in those days yeah did well, it annoys. It annoys me when I hear some some of my contemporaries saying, "Oh, yeah, we were just idiots. We didn't. Yeah, you know, we wouldn't. We, we wouldn't get in now. We shouldn't be there." Actually, I've I've looked at how many essays I wrote, I've, and it's a it's a thick file, essays about three thousand words, and we were doing two th- two of those a week, which which is compared to the other universities was was pretty massive. Yeah, no, we did. You you had to work, and certainly, I mean, if you're working with some of the the tutors who I had, um, some of the lecturers who I admired deeply, one yeah. would really you want, wanted to impress them and you wanted to have them reading your stuff so uh, yeah you pulled uh, you you pulled you made an effort now and again yeah um jeff i i really feel that it's about time we had some lunch um i think we've i think we've 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 covered most of the bases so, but look i really recommend special friends that you get hold of god's wolf because it's really good and it's got lots of violence in it and 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 stuff that you don't know about. I mean, one doesn't know anything about the Crusades, really, unless you've, you're, you're steeped in, in Runciman. So um, a really good read. And, and um, thank you. Thank you, Jeff Lee. Good to see you again after all these years. Yeah, thanks, James. Thanks for listening. And goodbye.